In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Most of us humans give ourselves the benefit of the break and we assume the worst about others. And when we mess up, we have an excuse. When someone else messes up, it's their character. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we we salute salute you. you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos. I'm here with my co-host and good friend Dale Culver. How you doing, man? I'm doing super. Hey, I'm glad that you're super. I am super excited about super today's guest. This guy, this guy has <laughs> so cliche. This guy has championed the cause of families for decades. He's been not only in the arena, but actually in the arena as an NFL quarterback. And I'm really excited to hear what he has to say about his newest book and bring him on here in just a second. But before we do, do you have a man word for us today? And if you say blitz, I'm throwing this book at you. Do not say blitz. All right. You said blitz. No, I didn't. Okay, I what's the word? I purposely went online to find a different okay. word. Rush. Then <laughs> stunt. <laughs> no, it is onslaught. Oh, <laughs> so vanilla. You like okay, that? Yeah. That's not Did vanilla. you go to the thesaurus and type in? Okay. No. Uh, talk to me about onslaught and why that's your man word. Well, you know, in, in life, it's like when the enemy comes after men, he does. He'll come at you with an onslaught, and you got to watch for it. Um, I wanted to use the word blitz because that's so good. Like when you're not paying attention and out of your blind spot, you just get taken out. And you've done some uh, leadership stuff on this too, where you got snot bubbled and yeah, because you didn't see it coming out of your blind spot. And we have to keep our head on a swivel, watch what's going on around us, our families, because uh, the enemy wants to attack. Yeah, I mean, that's very clear. The only thing I would push on a little bit there is I'm not sure it's an onslaught. I think it's a strategic sneak attack where he comes at you and wants to snuff. He's a patient predator. He'll wait oh, for yeah. decades oh, yeah. to take you out. And and I think oftentimes I see guys taken out and they never saw it coming. But it was building because they were the ones building it. But the onslaught came in a minute, and it was a, it was an attack they never saw coming. So uh, that would be my only pushback, although I think maybe we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. So anyway, hey, I, so well, hey. Hey, do you have any uh, review shout-outs? We or don't have a new one since okay. last time we podcasted. Right. But So guys, get on there. Send us some positive reviews. We'd love to, to get those. Thank you. Hey, man, I want to bring on my new friend, Jeff Kemp. He is 60 years old. He Now, I, I, I love this. He is from the PNW. He's from Seattle, but now he lives in Little Rock, Arkansas, and he wrote that down. So I appreciate you representing the PNW, Jeff. So he's been married yeah. to his beautiful wife, Stacy for 36 years years. So as I shared earlier, Jeff played quarterback in the NFL for 11 seasons. Since then, he's been a champion for families, founding the organization Stronger Families. He later became vice president at Family Life, and he currently is the fatherhood ambassador for Father the Fatherhood Commission. He's the author of Facing the Blitz, Three Strategies for Turning Trials into Triumphs. That is our topic for today. Jeff, it's great to have you on the show, man. Thank you so much. Hey, it's good to be with you, Jim. 
love huddling up with uh, you look, kind of look like an offensive lineman uh, from where I can see. Well, this. you know what? Uh, I, I probably look like that now, but I was actually a college fullback and a high school linebacker. So, uh, but we called ourselves full blocks in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> just, full block yeah you didn't get the ball too much but uh you, you paved the way yeah i started four years and had i think uh i think i had 18 carries <laughs> so if that tells you anything oh man hey man hey before we get rolling jeff uh your book uh, i really enjoyed your book it's full of your stories of you and your career and your father and, and his impact on your life but will you just take a couple minutes and share with our audience uh, your story, uh, things you like to do, your history, anything that would be relevant for today? Kind of the background on my story yep. as opposed to the Blitz book. Yeah, so I grew up in a, a, a very American family with a performance mentality, which is common. Uh, what was uncommon is my dad had the job of being an NFL quarterback. He was a quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, um, and I love sports. If you ask me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I'd say, oh, I'll play quarterback in the NFL like my dad. Uh, I didn't know anything different. Yeah. Um, and yet, uh, once I got to junior high school and, and high school, that was in Bethesda, Maryland, not Buffalo, where I'd grown up, because dad had run for Congress. So he's always been in leadership, big life, big guy. Um, and I always felt like I had to be a leader. I had to be something significant. I had to be a starting quarterback. And I was actually a late bloomer. So spent a lot of times as a backup. Uh, really didn't even start um, until my, let's see, 20 years of football. Only one year was I the starter going into the season. Um, and that was my senior year of college. So usually I'd earn the job like the last scrimmage of the summer or someone to get hurt. But uh, my dad kept encouraging me, your day's going to come. Hang in there. I believe in you. Mm -hmm. um, you look good today. What? I didn't even get in the game, dad. He goes, oh, I know. I'll say you're warming up. You're really throwing well. So he was that kind of encourager, which I needed to hang in there. And I, I defined my life um, by believing in God, believing in Jesus, went to church, uh, wanted to be a all-American kid and get good grades, make my parents happy, be popular. But what was more central to my definition was I got to be a quarterback mm. and I got to be a good one because who am I if I'm not yeah. something significant? And that was easy for me to uh, create that expectation of myself in a family with a dad that had been a big success. So I went off to Dartmouth College, um, played football there, got good grades, was a free agent with the Rams, um, drifted away from God uh, during my college years. And when college ended, I was finally a success. My acne cleared up. Uh, I was popular. I had girlfriends, a bunch of buddies in my fraternity, a, a contract with the Rams. Uh, a B grade point from Dartmouth College, so there oh, were a lot whoa. of things helping me. So now you were at Dartmouth, and are you saying you started there just one year? No, I started two years, but I wasn't. I was never the starter um, when the season began, except for one year. But my my junior year, I earned the starting job real quickly. We were there three of us in the first game, and. I ended up being the starter. So when you were playing at Dartmouth, they're not what I would say a school that's known for great football. Were they solid when you were there? Oh, they were solid. Uh, Dartmouth won the Ivy League championship this year. Oh, but many years they haven't. And the year I, the year before I played, they won the championship. My two years, uh, we were good but not great. And. The main thing is the Ivy League isn't a place that puts people in the NFL, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a place to become a scientist or a professor or, you know, an investment banker or something. Um, so when college ended, my life had kind of come together finally. I was the success I wanted to be, popular, um, having a blast, uh, drinking and partying a lot. But we had these parties during the week of graduation. And I remember going to bed at 4 or 5 in the morning and uh, really inebriated, but crystal clear sober spiritually. Mm. Because I was thinking about who am I really? I'm about to leave college, yeah. try out with the Rams, long shot to make it. What if I don't make it? Um, and why, if I'm having so much fun and feel like such a success, am I so empty? Uh. And that emptiness hit me at that point. I think it was God speaking to me. Um, and he basically brought the verse Romans eight twenty eight in my head that all things work together for good for those who love God. And the part I finally heard that I'd never heard before was for those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, wow. And I figured that's my problem. 
Jeff is my purpose. God is just my add-on, my little help in crisis. And I have no peace and I'm not the man I want to be. I need to let him be in charge and choose him as my purpose. So that's really when my journey with God aggressively began. And I went out to the Rams, made the team, met my wife. Amazing story there. She loves Jesus so much that she can put up with me. And uh, we, we started getting trained, coached, mentored, discipled, taught in marriage, finances, friendship, how to live for God. And uh, we ended up, you know, being with the Rams five years, then the Niners, then the Seahawks. And a lot of time I was on the bench. I wanted to be the starter. But I found out my role was as much as a team encourager and a mentor to guys on the team as it was to play. And we finally finished up in Philadelphia, raised our family, though, in Seattle for 25 years. And that's where when I quit football, I uh, founded a group called Stronger Families, started investing in fatherhood, marriage, uh, and families. So that's kind of the journey. And then I went to work for Family Life, a national group. And the last two years, I've been out on my own. Jeff Kemp team trained CEOs um, to live their faith out and to build great teams uh, to make sure they keep their marriage and their kids strong, mm. not just their business. Mm -hmm. And most of my time is spent with men, conferences, retreats. I'm taking 24 men out to Montana over the next month to go skiing and huddling. Uh -huh. and I'm excited about that. Oh, man, that's awesome. Well, hey, what we're going to do, Jeff, thanks for sharing that. And I really did appreciate uh, how open and vulnerable you were in the book. I've always thought I had a high-maintenance marriage. But I thought, man, Kemp, he might have even at just as high-maintenance of a marriage as I have because people were betting against us, and 28 years well, later, because, we're hanging there. Yeah, I mean, the reason that ours is a challenge, and this is common to a lot of folks, is um, A, men and women are super different, right? <laughs> B, yeah opposite personalities attract yeah and you couldn't have more opposite personalities than jeff and stacy kemp we only have one thing in common honestly we're, we're she's an introvert i'm an extrovert she's organized i'm chaotic uh, she's linear i'm abstract etc cetera, etc cetera. but she's a 99 dominant leader oh wow so we're both strong <clears throat> think our way is right but our way is different and what that's led to is a need for God um, and a lot of coaching and training and mentoring so that we could be a team rather than uh, two opponents. And a lot of people think that their spouse is their enemy. No, the enemy is God's enemy. Yeah. Your spouse is your teammate and your differences are something that's meant to bring you together. Just like a football team, linemen and running backs, they don't fight each other. They work together. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's really good. And I, I you, you cover a lot of information in this book. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to move right into what I call our rapid fire round. Are you ready for this? Hey, easily. Okay, we're going to throw the full, throw, full force blitz, baby. So what I've done is I've taken five words or phrases out of your book, and I'm just going to ask you what they mean. I want you just to unpack them for us, all right? And so you can take one to two minutes to answer, but I'm just going to throw them at you. The first word is found on page 24 of your book. And this should be a slam dunk for you. Oh, pardon the basketball terminology. Oh, how, how am I going to deal with that? I know. Sport. This is going to be a, this is, I would say, a touchdown pass on the two yard line, but the Seahawks didn't make that happen a couple of years ago. So uh, this is just, this is going to be a snap from center for you. Blitzkrieg. The Blitzkrieg was England's attack that came from Germany, and it gave them the chance to double down under Churchill's leadership, and it became their finest hour to stand up under the blitz, to find what their true character was. So in football, the blitz is attacking you, but there's opportunity. No free safety and man-to-man -man coverage. So crisis has not just danger, but opportunity. That's what I want to get across to every man listening to us. The junk that happened in your past, the character flaws you have, the bad things people did to you, the bad things the world lets happen, and even the mistakes you make, if you put them in God's hands and team up, there's an amazing opportunity. Well, and you know, our organization is called the men in the arena. So being a, an NFL quarterback, you understand that you're in the arena. So we're helping our guys get it done in the arena, in the stress bubble of life. And I love your word picture because guys, when you're in the arena, you're not just alone. You have an enemy coming at you 
in any strategic way he can to take you out, and I love it. So the next word I have for you, and I, I can't remember if I found this in your book or I threw it in myself. I think it's in your book because on page 43, you you said something. I was, I was uh, surprised. I thought you were 6'4", 220 or something, but you said that you were at Dartmouth. You were only six feet tall, and that you were shared earlier that you had to battle your way and fight your way through it, and you are the quintessential underdog, and I love that. So can you talk to me about being the underdog? Well, by the way, I'm a, I'm an inch too tall to be an NFL quarterback. Russell Wilson is the perfect height. How tall is he? Five eleven, just under. <laughs> and Breeze is only six anyway, feet. Breeze is only six feet tall. Okay, so an underdog um, is a spot where people may not be expecting it, mm. and you may be coming from behind, um, and and you're going to have a turnaround that finishes way better than it starts. Okay, but real, that's what life is. All of us start off behind, and we need to transform and improve. So I really believe in underdog stories and that life is meant for transformation from bad to good. Uh, so I don't mind, you know, if I start off third string or if I get cut and I want to train my son, my daughter, other men uh, to not look at problems as the end of the story. It's just one page on the chapter and one chapter in the book. Mm. And the book is a long story and the author is God and God turned around the Jesus story who was the worst blitz in history? Yeah, buried for three days. They 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 dissed him. His guys all abandoned him. They they falsely accused him and convicted him and whipped him and put him on a cross. And he let them do it all, seemingly the underdog. But what happens? He raises from the dead, comes mm. back and trains everyone, sends the Holy Spirit. He won the eternal victory. So underdog is God's way. And you and I don't need to worry about starting off slow or having mistakes in our past. He'll forgive the mistakes. If you get with a team, you train yourself, you change, and pretty soon your blitzes become your blessing, your trials become your triumphs, um, and you grow character by being an underdog. Yeah, so I've got to. I've got to think that God has a special place in His heart for the underdogs. I think of Gideon, I think of Samson, I think of Peter, I think of Paul, and I just think that God has a, a special place for underdogs. Hey, on page sixty-five, you tell a story happened to one of your teammates who was a kicker, and Jim Zorn gets engaged in the story. And the two words I want to uh, ask you about are undiluted responsibility. Well, in humanity, there's a fundamental principle called the um, human attribution error. The human attribution error. What it means is that most of us humans give ourselves the benefit of the break, and we assume the worst about others. Mm. And when we mess up, we have an excuse. When someone else messes up, it's their character. Ah. When we do something good, we, we, we credit our character. And when we do something bad, we have an excuse. When someone else does something good, we say it's their circumstances. They're lucky. So that's all human pride, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't like to feel bad about ourselves. I'm especially like that. I, I'm an enthusiastic extrovert, and my biggest pain <laughs> is to feel bad about myself, Yeah, uh, which is what I struggle with in marriage because I, I, I take all of her corrections as criticism. Ah. Anyway, if you're on a football team and you're a kicker like uh, my buddy Todd Peterson is and, and you kick a field goal and you miss it and the team loses the game and you say, shoot, I should have made that field goal. You know, you're talking to the media and you tell them, um, I really feel bad. I missed it. Um, I need to make those. And then you say, but it wasn't a real good snap and the hold wasn't quite good, but I, I still need to make it. As soon as you do that, but you have just pointed the finger at others rather than yourself and you didn't take total responsibility. All right. So that's the idea here. We need to take a hundred percent responsibility for ourselves, And then a coach can defend you and say, Hey, he's the good kicker. He doesn't miss those often. We need to get better snaps and better holds. Understand. Uh, and if, if you want to heal an argument in your marriage and you think you're only 15 or 20% at fault, and you wait for her to go first, you'll be waiting a long time and you will yeah. not be a leader. Secondly, if you think that you only have 20% of the fault, you're bad at math. <laughs> <laughs> it, it always goes back further. Men are responsible for the marriage and we haven't been loving her well. We haven't been dating her. We haven't been communicating. Uh, there's something that 
we've been doing that we can point to and take responsibility for. And you either want to have a great future or you want to stand on your pride and defend your stupid spot and yeah. have a continuing bad future. So that's why we're talking about um, what's the what's the two words you gave Undiluted me? responsibility. Undiluted responsibility. Don't dilute it with a but or you all on me. All right. That's what leadership is. No, I really appreciate that. I, I heard a guy one time say, when things, a great leader, when things go great, when things go great, a leader looks out the window. When things go poorly, he looks in the mirror. And you said, yeah. and you, if you do that, you are, if you are not taking full responsibility, you are not the leader. And then you said, men are responsible. So in the context of marriage and family, it is the man's responsibility to lead the charge, correct? It is. And you know what responsibility looks like for a Christian man? Serving. It looks like it looks like a guy who carries his cross up the hill. Yeah. Says, go ahead and nail me to it. Says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And while he's being crucified, he's taking care of his mom and his buddy John and saying, hey, you care for each other. And he's even forgiving the criminal next to him and saying, hey, you'll be with me in paradise. So a, a real responsible leader man is a humble, serving, sacrificing man. Well, on page Period. 152 of your book, number 12 on these uh, wisdom nuggets, you said, see your marriage as a contest of generosity. And and I love that. It's who can give the most, not who can get the most. Okay, so uh, rapid fire phrase two, you mentioned twice in your book on page 120 and 137, so I know it's a quote of yours that you really enjoy. And I'm just going to use two words of the quote, rising tide. Lifts all boats. <laughs> yes. John F. Kennedy quoted that. And my dad, whose initials were JFK as well, quoted it probably more than Kennedy because he loved it. And uh, the idea where the rising tide lifts all boats is imagine the boat sitting on a, a flat harbor on the sand with the tide that's out. Mm -hmm. But when the tide comes in, every single boat rises. Many of us only worry about our own boat. Yeah. We only worry about our own life. We only worry about ourselves. But God's approach is serve everyone else. The tide will rise. Generosity, kindness, compassion, civility. And all of a sudden, your boat rises with theirs. Yeah. But selfishness doesn't work. And you know what? One of the words in there, a rising tide, the other word on the other side is lifts. Okay? Lift means life is for transformation. Lift. Life is for transformation. The underdog goes from underdog to victor. The victim goes from victim to overcomer. The immature goes from immature to mature, okay? And the problem goes from trouble, and I don't know what we're going to do, to a team situation where we turn it around, we learn from our mistakes, we start a cancer research foundation or a, a program to help men that have been estranged from their kids. And we turn problems into successes. Life is for transformation. And my dad, he represented lift. He always lifted other people to be their best and to improve and to find a positive path forward. That's what Jesus did. And that's what men are meant to do, lift others. Okay. So I got to ask you a question. So I read about I don't know, 40 to 50 books a year, Dale, for the podcast. And I read through the whole book. I went cover to cover on your book. And when I, and I've read, written nine books. So when I go through and I read a book, I'm thinking, what's going on in this guy's head right now? And your book was really interesting. I, I, I'm going to ask you this question. I felt a conflict in the book between the titles of this book. You named okay. the book Facing the Blitz, but I felt like it seemed to me that it, you could have titled the book Lift, Lessons I Learned from My Dad. It, That's good. It, it was a real tribute to your dad. And so my next word was lift. But I, I want to ask you this, and I'd just be author to author, uh, guy to guy. Did you wrestle with the title uh, being lift instead of blitz? Ironically, when my dad was alive, I had been thinking about writing a book with him ah. about legacy and having a legacy of leadership and love and, and, and lift. Um, and then he passed away. And I waited a few years and all of a sudden the blitz concept of turning bad things to, to negatives seemed to make sense because more people are going through trouble 
than our thinking about how do I leave a legacy. Yeah. And so the lowest common denominator is let me meet people uh, on the street, in the back alley, uh, on the field, in the arena with what they're really dealing with, challenges, problems. I started with the blue, you know, the, the street level blue color of problems. And as you get transformed by those and see that there's a team strategy for beating them the way Jesus did, then it stops being about you surviving and it starts being about you lifting others and building a legacy. Okay. So uh, it did end up being a lot about dad because that's many of my great examples. Uh, but I wanted it to be about the blitz. So you may have felt the conflict, but I wanted the blitz. My next book, Jim, uh, is going to be about men. And then the book after that's going to be about leadership and it will be called lift Lord willing. Okay. Well, see, it wasn't a conflict necessarily. It was, I could tell there was a lot going on there. And the only guy I've ever read any legacy stuff on is Joe Pellegrino. He has an organization about legacy, but when I read the book, I thought, man, you could have a great book dealing with lift, writing about your dad and really addressing legacy. There was a lot in there. And in fact, I got to tell you this. So your dad, I, who I did not know who your dad was. I knew he ran for president and I knew different things about him. And I was in the office with a friend yesterday who said your dad had a major role in the pro bowl moving out of Illinois, uh, New Orleans one year for racism or something. And it was a, he was a big, big, big deal in the American football league. Back in 1966, my dad was on the all-star team of the American Football League. They went to New Orleans, and uh, the black guys couldn't get any cabs other than black cabs. They couldn't go to the same restaurants. They couldn't stay in the same hotel. And they said, hey, we're not playing. Dad was the captain, and they they told him what's up. And he said, okay, we're with you. So the whole all-star team said no, told the league we're not playing in this city, and they moved the game to Houston. So you can stand up to justice without being an angry idiot. Yeah, And you can affect change, but you've got to bank on the dignity of mankind and come together as a team, which they did. And uh, I've never gone anywhere, inner cities of America, black events, uh, African-American leaders, where people don't come up and say, I loved your dad. He was a great American. He inspired me. He's the only Republican I ever voted for. I loved his <laughs> ideas. He made free enterprise work for everyone. Uh, he had a great heart. He had a big heart. Um, he included everyone. That's totally true. My dad knew how to lift others and how to include others and value others. And football was helpful for that. Yeah. So in the huddle, uh, you don't care what background people are from, what religion they are, what color they are. You, you just want to know, hey, can you block, tackle, throw, catch? Um, are you going to lay it on line for the team? And will you have my back? So same thing in the military. We need to take that huddle philosophy into our marriage into our parenting, into our workplace, into this divided Republicans hating Democrats, Democrats hating Republicans, Fox News fighting this other news network, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Jesus people care about everyone. Yep. Mm -hmm. And we need to build teamwork by focusing on the dignity of God, getting to know people, hearing their story, sharing our story. Hey, I want to let you know that uh, in, your, in your book on page 149, so your dad... I don't know when he passed away, but he did inspire me through your stories. And uh, I wrote down, whenever I go to a speaking event, I'm going to go into the kitchen and I'm going to go in there and thank the people behind the scenes getting it done. I thought, what a wonderful thing to do. Because when you show up and you're the speaker, all of these guys out here want to talk to you, but the ones behind the scenes that make it happen, they're really the rock stars, the MVPs. So I really appreciate that about your dad and I appreciate that story and his life. And I want to jump back into this, this topic of facing the blitz as men. On page 19 of your book, you tell readers the purpose of the book is to share lessons from dealing with blitzes so that you can avoid unnecessary fear, setback, and misery when circumstances fall short of what you want them to be. Instead, experience courage, growth, and joy. So what did you mean by fear, setback, and misery? Well, a lot of people kind of go through life with a hopeful attitude they're not going to have a problem. <laughs> yeah. And that's like sticking your head in the sand. It's just not yep. realistic. Um, Jesus told us, he said, Hey, in this life, you're going to get blitzed. Yep. But don't panic. I overcame the blitz. Yep. You know, that's the NFL version, not the NIV. <laughs> uh, so if you don't expect problems, if you're expecting, you know, a cakewalk, then you'll be discouraged and you'll be fearful and you'll be frustrated when a problem comes. If you know that there's an enemy, God's enemy. Yeah. If you know there's problems, 
Jesus said there's problems. Then you see them as opportunities to lean on God, to team up with other people, to grow through a circumstance and maybe try a different approach to life. Okay. So that's what I meant. I mean, if you're always hoping that nothing bad happens, you're just going to be fearing and you won't be equipped when it hits. So be a realist. Yeah. Be ready for what comes and uh, develop your faith and develop your team now. So you're ready to stay long-term focused and willing to change and humble yourself and basically focus on blessing others, even when you're in a blitz, because that's how you get through it better. Well, you said earlier in the show, Jeff, that, that, you know, a lot of us men, we live in a performance-based uh, mindset. We're raised by performance-driven fathers, but we live in a society that's comfort-driven. And I think you have this tension between performance and comfort. I, I Pick one, right? Because we live in a world where there is misery and there is pain and there is discomfort. And if you want to be the leader that God has called you to do, to lead, to, to be, comfort really can't be your highest value. No, comfort can't be your highest value. Comfort is a verb. Yeah. It's not a noun. You, you, America has tried to turn into a, a noun. It's life, liberty, and the guarantee of happiness. Yeah. No, no, no. That's a wrong quote. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit yep. of happiness, which is basically opportunity, but not a guaranteed comfortable situation, right? And so comfort, when you seek pleasure, happiness, wealth, riches, a, a second home, a bigger pickup truck, a nicer vacation, more followers on your Twitter account, uh, all that stuff is a noun of comfort. You're seeking some place to make you happy. God did not make us to be satisfied by circumstances. God made us, designed us to only be satisfied by relationship vertically. And then when you win a Super Bowl or a grandchild is born or you get a raise or something cool happens, you can say, thank you, God. This is really cool. It's a gift from you, but I glorify you. I don't revel in this circumstance. Yes. So uh, performance is a great thing if it's not where you get your identity. And comfort is a great thing if it's not where you get your security. We're supposed to get our identity received from God. Then we can perform well to please him, not earn something. And if we have some nice circumstances, some comfort, we can say, thank you, Lord. This is a gift from you, but you're the only thing that satisfies me because comfort goes away then I'll lose all my happiness. Now, that's not true. Many people with great difficulties have had happiness because of their vertical relationship with God. Well, you shared early in the podcast that you came to Christ because of Romans 8, 28. For God works all things out for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And a lot of those things were initially bad things Yeah, that God turned and redeemed. And so that's what you're talking about, right? Well, you, you know, blitz, blitzes and trials and frustrations and problems those are things that drive us to God, teach us more about God, grow our character, make us interdependent on other people, uh, humble us. Yes. And so something good can come from something bad. Well, and you you talk about this performance, this relational, this 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 system of values that we have. On page seventy nine, you tell guys to do a self check of their own value system based on relational. Or performance-based criteria. I thought that was really powerful. And then a little bit further down on page eighty-four, you said, "Here's the point: relationship ought to not ought not be rejected and human value diminished because of external aspects of a person." You know, you know, what have we been taught? How have we been lied to in our culture? And how do we overcome that as men today? Based on that quote. Well, that quote came from a story of um, getting my chance to start for the Seahawks. Yes. And playing against the 49ers, my old team, having a great week, having a coach encourage me and say, I've been waiting for you to be the Seahawks quarterback. You're going to be great. I've been waiting for this day. Man, I was so pumped. But guess what? Didn't turn out so well. That coach that encouraged me before the game was not so encouraging at halftime when we were losing 28 nothing, and I was benched, and he didn't say one word to me for that whole rest of the game, that night, Monday in films, or for a month. He totally rejected me relationally because I hadn't performed. Mm. That's the conditional performance-based value system, okay? 
And you think of the, the young chubby kid on the football team who doesn't get the chance to play, doesn't get, you know, as much cheers. You think of the girl that isn't attractive and beautiful and has a bad complexion or some difficult uh, physical deformity in junior high. How is she going to be treated? Mm. Yeah. Uh, you think of the kid uh, with all the technology studs who doesn't know one thing about how to run a computer or write an app. You think about the kid with all the athletes who can't catch a ball, can't throw a spiral. How's he going to be treated? Okay. We value people for the surface, the appearance, the, the last thing they did that fits our value system. And that isn't God's way. Jesus uh, died for us while we were still jacked up, messed up idiots. You know, Romans 5, 8. Yeah. God demonstrates his love for us while we're still sinners. Man, that's proof. So that's the unconditional relationship value system. And I just want men listening to us and Jim and Jeff to keep asking ourselves the question, hey, am I valuing my son or daughter based on how they're performing? Am I treating my wife based on circumstances or her looks? Or am I going to the heart and saying, God made this person, I'm going to unconditionally value them and I'm going to love them in a relational way, not a performance way. And, and you know what at work? You could fire someone for not performing well and hitting their numbers, but you will not demean them. You will love them, build them up, treat them well, and try to do the best you can for their next job. So we can still keep a performance measurement, but we never reject people or relationship because of it. Now, that's a very powerful powerful statement, Jeff. You experienced rejection in your career, but how many parents reject their children or reject a spouse? You know, what I hear you saying is, hey, don't be a ledger person. In your book, you talked about the love bank, you know, and what I hear you saying is even when a family member strips that account down to zero, you still need to love them unconditionally. It's the only really unconditional gift we can give to others, right, is love. Yeah. And you know what, what? To live like that, Jim, is hard. We can't do it every day. So that's what drives you back to your relationship with God because yep. he loved you that way. And he gives you the Holy Spirit and there's strength in walking with God. That's where you get the, the power to love, to forgive or to apologize when you don't feel like it um, or they don't deserve it. So that, that's the unconditional uh, value system right there. And, wow, and I want to remind us, some of us dads who love, love sports so much and we like connecting with our kids on sports, which is cool. I did that. I coached all four of my boys in football. Did you know that the, the most feared time of any game day for a youth athlete is the drive home with dad? After. Yeah. The, been there. The, the drive home with dad because we replay the game and we run the films. Hey, how come you didn't take that shot? Or I feel like you should have, you know, kept the ball more. Or did you ask the coach to put you in? Why didn't you do that? Anything that's analyzed in the game is different than this. You know what? I'm so proud of you. I love seeing you out there competing. I love your character. Uh, you're such an encouragement to others. I just love watching you play. That's unconditional. Okay? And we need to set them free to own their sport and their life themselves, not make it a pain because we're overanalyzing or overcoaching or even criticizing. That's so good, man. Hey, we're going to take a short break here from our sponsor. We're going to come right back at you. The Men in the Arena is a nonprofit organization with the mission to inspire men towards becoming their best version and changing their world. Every man in the arena matters. Our Men in the Arena closed Facebook forum for men is a great way to dialogue about manhood with men from around the world. There we have lively discussions on every topic of manhood imaginable. Join that group today. Because of the passion to see men get out of the bleachers and into the arena, Jim wants to offer some powerful resources to all men who visit our website at meninthearena.org. Give us your email and we'll send you a free PDF version of the field guide. It's Jim's 365-day bathroom book for men. It's the study of manly words in the Bible, illustrated with great stories. This is also a great resource for all our arena men. We'll also add you to our weekly equipping blast, including Jim's personal blog, prayer requests, and weekly boots on the ground mission. Men, the stakes are high. The pressure is on. Do you hear the roars of those you love and those anonymous voices in the bleachers pleading for you to enter the fight? Because when you get it, everyone wins. 
Now, back to our episode. Well, and then it, when we do that, it comes back to my love is based on your performance. Exactly. And that's not how God loves us, and we should not love. And that, that is a temptation for guys who played sports or who are driven. And uh, I, I think I battled that, but not to the degree that um, I've seen others battle it. But it's definitely a battle because our kids need to know, hey, I love you. I'm proud of you. This is what we can do together. We're a team in this. And hey, you said something. Uh, I, I personally, when I read the book, I thought chapter six is the chapter that every man buy the book and chapter six that to me, if a guy can get that chapter, I think it'll change his life forever. And chapter six is titled, Be an Investor, Not a Consumer, page 93. In that, you spoke about the accuracy of Drew Brees' arm. I, that was impressive. I'll let you tell that story. But why is it so important? Why is that accuracy that of, of Drew Brees' arm, why is it so important to being a consumer. You know, will you explain the chapter, why you wrote it, and why I yeah. believe it's so important in forming the masculine soul? Well, let's start with football, and then we'll work our way to the investor-consumer yes. metaphor, and then we'll go to relationships. Yep. So Drew Brees has mastered accuracy in football by working at that. And he doesn't do it because he likes to win contests. He does it to make the ball easy to catch for receivers Yeah. because he wants his team to win. And he's trying to make others better okay that's what drew Brees does great teams teach their quarterbacks to throw the ball to a one foot diameter of accuracy perfectly accurate to help the receiver succeed and they teach the receivers that no matter where the ball's thrown they got to catch it both of them are investing to make the other guy's job easier you get it oh yeah absolutely so that's the investor mentality but what if a wide receiver was going across the middle jim Third down, eight yards to go, ball thrown behind him. And he thinks, oh, no, quarterbacks are paid a lot. They should throw me a perfect pass. I'm a consumer. Everything's about me. I just saw a thousand ads saying, have it your way. Yeah. If I slow down to catch this pass behind me, the free safety and strong safety will smash me. And I might get hurt. So he knocks the ball down to wait for a perfect pass. You just saw a guy switch from being an investor who will sacrifice for the team to catch that ball, to be an, a consumer who protects himself. What happens? No catch, no first down, no touchdown, no win, no playoffs, no Super Bowl. We all lose. Okay? So investors add value to other people. Consumers take value from other people. I had a guy ask a question on social media a while back. Are you an asset or a liability? And that's what you're talking about here. And I think for men, we need to be asking that question in regards to our families. Yeah, and I don't even think of it as... as Liability. That just means, are you a pain in the butt, a negative in this house? <laughs> yes. That doesn't, I'm not going to answer that question very well. But if, if, if I have to answer the question, am I taking more from my kids and from my wife than I'm investing? Yes. I understand that because let's say your attitude towards your wife is you, you come home from road trips and all you're thinking about is I want to have sex with my wife. And you're not thinking about conversation, service, questions, listening, camaraderie meeting her needs, finding out about what her week was like, you're a consumer and you probably won't end up having a good night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if you're a dad who only wants your kids to get good grades and make the team and get into college to make you look good, you're a consumer and your kid picks up on it and they don't feel loved unconditionally. Mm. Uh, so it's negative parenting if you're consuming. So that, I think guys can figure that out. Am I consuming in this family? Am I consuming from my kids or, or am I investing? Same at work. You don't want a bunch of consumers who just come for a paycheck and, and want a, a, a company car. No, you want people that act like they own the business and take responsibility and come up with ideas and solve problems and, and treat customers fabulously well. That's an investor. So what about and investors always work on teamwork? Yes. They, they never they never want to be solo artists or work in a silo. So what about the guy? who says, hey, I'm listening to this podcast and I'm driving to work. I'm going to be gone nine hours today and every day of the week. And when I come home, I'm tired. I am I am investing in my family so that they can have a house, uh, over a roof over their head, and food to eat. Isn't that enough? What would you say to that guy? Uh, you know, Dr. Phil would ask you, well, <laughs> when you come home on the weekend and you hang out with your wife and you end up having arguments and your kid doesn't want to, talk to you. Is that working for you? 
It's not. Nope. Your wife and your kids may say they want money and a new car and a new phone, uh, but they want something deeper than that. They want relationship and they want love. So I would say to you, thank you for working your tail off. Go ahead and work hard, but put some boundaries on it, man. Shut it down so you can be home to dinner. Show, show up at your kids' games. Take your wife on a date. Set up a babysitter. If you're working your tail off and you're gone for a week and a half, why don't you text your wife every day something great about her, something you love about her? Uh, why don't you write her a little note and pop it in the mail? Um, why don't you plan some romantic experience when you come home? And what about writing notes to your kids? My dad used to write little note cards. He called them JFK grams and tell really? me what a great guy I was, how much he believed in me. He'd put a Bible verse in there. He'd encourage me. So make sure you do relational things, not just financial things. Well, and you, you said something really Fundamentally, good. your family wants your heart. Well, and you said something really powerful to me too, that, you know, we all work hard in America. And most of these guys listen to our podcast. They're working guys. They're Christian guys. They work hard. Hard work is not their issue. But what is the issue, and this is what I think you address, is working smart. Are well, you working smart? Well, why did you go to work in the first place? Was it to have a house or was it to have a great family? Was it for a lifestyle or for a bunch of good relationships in the team of people you call family? Uh, it was for that reason. But we lose track of that and we think it's about the circumstances, the lifestyle, the, the possessions, uh, the income. And the workplace is more than willing to play that game with us. Yes. And, you know, you're, you're hooked to your phone 24-7. And it's so easy to never put it down and always be connected to this instead of your wife. This is my problem. I have to put this thing down, turn it off, hide it, so I'm with her in the evening. And I, I can't imagine, you know, if I was 40 years old today with my kids on these all the time, I didn't have to face that. So I say, men, draw a boundary keep the goal of relationships number one and work your tail off when you're working, but then shut it down, shut it down and come home, make family dinner important, make weekends, going to church on Sundays. That's more important than youth sports. Do you think, okay? take a, take a vacation as a family. Do you think boundaries is a huge issue for men? Yeah, because they don't see many other guys with boundaries, so they don't end up doing Ooh, it. Oh, that's powerful. We, we, cop we copy what we see from others and you're yeah. a leader. So, Draw a boundary, and maybe the guy next to you will finally draw a boundary. That's powerful, man. You, you've said numerous times throughout the podcast, and just recently you said the team of people you call family, they want relationship and they want your love. Then you also called family a team sport. And I think that is such a powerful meta metaphor. I was we were talking earlier. I was a linebacker in in high school and college, and or and a fullback in college, and so I blocked for a guy. My whole role was to run fast and hit a guy hard, and that's it. That's all. I was called a running block. So I understand that concept of team. You know, you are a quarterback, and you realize that without those guys in front of you, you're nothing. It takes a team. So yeah. you had a proverb in your book that I thought was beautiful. On page 114, you quoted an African proverb, and you said, He who wants to go fast travels alone. He who wants to go far travels together. Will you talk to us about facing these life blitzes together with family members and friends as we go through life? First, I want you to remember that God made us human beings, and particularly those who reconnect to him as believers. He made us as a plural body of Christ. He calls us a masterpiece. He calls us a team. Uh, the word that's used in the Greek is poema in Ephesians 2.10. For you are God's poema, his masterpiece, his artistic creation. It is a plural word that means that Jim and Jeff, Jim and his wife, Jeff and Stacy, Jeff and Stacy and Jim and his wife together are the masterpiece, uh, not Jeff by himself, not Jim by himself. So God is a father a son and a Holy spirit three in one relationship is at the center. Teamwork is at the center. That's the way he made us to be. Marriage is the most beautiful male and female combining creative team on earth. Right. Yeah. And the family expands that team. 
so this idea that if you want to go fast, you don't need to listen to anyone else. They won't complicate your life. You can go fast, but you will not climb Mount Everest that way. Mm-hmm. True. Okay. And you may get fast to a dead end like the prodigal son. Yeah. But if you want to go far, you know, to the kingdom of heaven, to unity, to brotherhood, to reconciliation, to justice, to prosperity that's shared by many rather than just a few, then you need to go together and you need to do it in teamwork. And the Bible says in Ephesians, uh, no, excuse me, uh, Hebrews 10, 24, it says, be creative, come up with a bunch of cool ways to encourage, stimulate and spur one another on to the best possible self they can be and to the good works that God has designed for them to do. Be creative and spur each other on, encourage each other. And then it says, and don't forget to meet together. Don't forget to huddle. Don't forget to share your challenges and your goals. Don't forget to pray and encourage one another. If you forget to do that, then you are losing the power of teamwork, which God designed us for. Well, it's interesting. My Bible translation says, not forget. It says, do not forsake. But in a, in a, to me, when I hear that word forsake, I think of a man's default is into isolation. And when you talk about running fast and alone, what I hear you saying, Jeff, I, I hear you saying the guy who chooses to run alone is the guy who's got some pride issues that need to be dealt with. And you, totally. the most powerful quote in your book, to me, the most powerful quote in your book, for me personally, was on page 122. And you said this, going back to this man who's running alone, you said humility is actually the key to greatness. And I think that's a huge statement. Will you explain that in the context of team? Yeah, well, if you think about history, everything bad began with pride. Oh, yeah, true. Right? Lucifer wants to have some of God's glory, so he rebels. And he splits up the angels in a third take off and are cast down to earth. And then pride makes Adam and Eve think, oh, God is holding out on us. We want to be a little bit more like him. We'll eat this apple. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then pride makes Adam not confess. And he says, the woman you gave me did it. And <laughs> you, you caused this, God. Okay. So pride is at the root of humans' bad stuff. And it, it messes up our marital arguments. And you see the race relations and problems. It's pride, arrogance, but everything good begins with humility because humility, humility sees yourself accurately. You're a creation of God worth so much. Jesus would die for you. So you're not to be trounced on, but you're to get down and serve others because you're not better than them. And, and humility heals, humility reconciles, humility unites, pride divides. So I would tell a man, if you want to be strong, copy Jesus. Wow. It unites more humble. No one was more humble than Jesus. He washed the feet of his servants. Huh. Yeah. Let's do you do we do things that are similar to that for our wife and our kids? Do people at work if you're a boss see you serve? Do they see you wash the dishes? They see you uh, unload the dishwasher, take out the trash at work? Um, do you ask the question what can I do to help you or do you ask your team, "Hey, I need you to do this one for me. I, I need to get this done." We, need to meet these numbers. You guys need to do this. That's a consumer. That's a pride man. A humble man is a servant. And when it comes to apologies, the humble man is first to apologize. I don't care who, who did more wrong. The humble man apologizes first. He's actually the strongest. Yes. So well, humility is the key to teamwork. Well, you said Jesus washed the disciples' feet. When I when I picture that scene in, in John chapter 13, what, what really impacts me more than washing their feet is that he washed all of their feet, and then Judas left the building. So knowing Judas was about to betray him, he washed his feet. So not only did he wash his, his, the feet of his buddies, he washed the feet of an enemy. And I thought that was yeah. so powerful. And so, you know, you talk about humility uh, being the uh, key to greatness, and I agree, and hu- the humble person travels with others. How, how does humility interact with trust regarding the family as a team. You said on page 118, building trust isn't as easy as it sounds. Where do you start? It begins with a desire to have the kind of character others will trust and commitment to being trustworthy. I thought that was a powerful, powerful statement as we look at humility working together with trust. Do you see these two interacting on the football field as well as in the family? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the football field's similar to the business place. And, you know, Pat Lencioni has a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And he, he articulates five keys to teamwork. You need to have trust. And then you need to have constructive conflict, debate. And then you need to have commitment. And then you need to have accountability. And then results can be focused on. Okay? But it all starts with trust. You have to trust that the other guy is going to do his part. And he needs to be able to trust you. Well, the way you build trust is through relationships. And I would say to men, you need to tell your story to some other men and yes. ask them their story. And secondly, you need to admit your blitz stories and your problems and your weaknesses. And it'll be scary. You'll think he'll disrespect you. And the dude will actually say, man, I can't believe you told me that. Thanks a lot. That's a lot of courage you just showed. All of a sudden, he respects you more because you showed humility and you were honest. And then with your wife and even with your teenagers, mm. you need to disclose where you're imperfect, where you have weakness, where you made a mistake, what you're learning, how God wants to change you. Share that stuff. And you run the risk that someone will betray you like Judas bit did, but that was only one out of 12. <laughs> okay. And, and you need to depend on God to protect you, not no one ever um, is going to betray me. Uh, an example of this, Jim, is I meet with a guy named Pete every week, and we self-disclose how we're doing. And one week, I was coming home from a road trip where I kind of had some sexual temptation that I um, I didn't do anything, quote, infidelity or anything, but I was weak, and mm -hmm. I, I, I collapsed, and I gave in. And I didn't want to tell my friend Pete about it because I thought it'd be a little bit embarrassing and he might not think as well as me. But I knew I should and I committed to be transparent and vulnerable. So at lunch, I said, hey, Pete, I just want to get something out of the table and confess to you this sexual uh, temptation lust thing that I failed in. He immediately thanked me, smiled, said, that's what I love about you, Jeff. You're so honest. And then he confessed an area in his life that was str a struggle. And all of a sudden, he, we respected each other more, we confessed more, and then we were set free. Humility does that. Pride yes. stops them. Exactly. Pride stops that. Pride will not let you share that. And most men do not have deep friendships because they stand behind pride. They end up drifting. They end up isolated. And then they no one knows them, and they're just faking it. And that is a crappy life. That's so powerful, Jeff, because, you know, uh, an NFL quarterback is kind of seen as the apex predator, right? I mean, so many kids grow up someday going, oh, I want to be an NFL quarterback. You reached that. You you reached this apex, this pinnacle of, of uh, you know, masculinity. But you stand here this morning and you confess this. Uh, this humility is so important for guys, and we tell guys all the time, and I've got Five guys I pray with every pray for every day, and those guys I tell my dirty secrets to. And and it's so important for us to say, hey, listen, I'm a broken guy, and I, I failed here, and I want to confess it to you. And I think there's power in confession. It just takes great humility. So I really do appreciate that. And, you know, Patrick Lancioni's book is powerful. And uh, John Wooden, did you ever read his book, They Call Me Coach? I quote wouldn't, but I don't think I read that book. Well, in but. that book, he talks about this success pyramid he developed, and the bottom corner is trust. And so it's just so powerful, yeah. man. It's so it's so powerful. So speaking of trust, speaking of confession, speaking of humility, will you tell you you had a wonderful story in the book? You had some great stories. I really really enjoyed them. But you have a pilot buddy, Don. Can you share the story about what happened to him and how it's so important for us to be humble and allow guys to watch our back? Yeah, Don was a Navy fighter pilot in the Top Gun School, and um, he he went through this training to prevent the loss of oxygen. Uh, it's called hypotoxic hypoxia. When you lose oxygen in a plane, lose cabin pressurization and oxygen, you're going to pass out pretty soon, and then you crash the plane. So they used to teach the guys in a oxygen chamber room with a glass window uh, how quickly they would lose consciousness. All right. And it had never happened in a plane before, but one day Dom was flying um, with his training uh, pilot, the commander, and the commander said, okay, Don, turn in, let's start the dogfight. And Don didn't turn in, he kept flying at two miles up above this guy, just kept flying straight. And he said, Don, turn in, and Don didn't. Turns out Don had his face mask off, he was kind of playing it cool. 
Okay, so he didn't have the oxygen double check and his cabin had lost pressurization mm. and he was losing oxygen and he was so fuzzy, he couldn't really pay attention to the guy's voice. Finally, the commanding officer knew that something bad was up and he, he yelled in the microphone, Don, take your oxygen mask, put it on your mouth now. And Don groggily grabbed it, put it to his mouth and all of a sudden the oxygen rush brought him back to consciousness he realized he was about 15 seconds from passing out and taking his jet into the ocean. And Don told my sons and us men at a welcome to manhood weekend that I set up for my son to be brought into the, the culture of manhood. He said, your most invisible enemy, similar to the lack of oxygen, is pride. And unless you've given some other man access and trust to ask you any question, you will not notice when your pride is taking you down. Wow. So everyone needs to have a huddle. Everyone needs to have a friend. And then you need to go out of your way to give them permission to ask you questions and to point things out. And you, frankly, should go out of your way to disclose to them what's going on in your life so you don't get so far away from reality. So, yeah, you need to have uh, trusted buddies who can – talk to you when your pride is getting in the way. And if your wife calls you on your pride, don't get offended and defend yourself. You're being an idiot if you do. And I've done that so much <laughs> that I'm qualified to call you an idiot. <laughs> I love it. No, you're, you're, you're saying something. We've watched a lot of good men fall in the last probably year. And uh, their pride manifested in a secret life. We're all sinners. Yeah. We're all sinners, right? So for me to say, oh, they fell into sin. No, they, we all sin, but their pride fell, their sin fell into a secret life because of pride that was unconfessed and it, it ruined, temporarily has ruined their life. And so that's really good, man. So we, and you're a quarterback. So you, you realize this blindside thing and you realize the, you know, you, you were playing football when Joe Theismann had his episode, you know, with a LT back on Monday Night Football. Is that 1980? 1980, I think. Was it eighty? Yeah, I, I remember watching that on TV, and uh, I also remember running away from Lawrence Taylor much faster than I might have because <laughs> I knew how dangerous he was. Um, yeah, we, we we worried a lot about Lawrence Taylor. Well, but and that's and that now tell me about this left tackle. Is this a is this a real thing? Where that left tackle is like the best lineman on the field to protect well, your the, backside? The, their salaries their salaries would indicate that they pay linemen fifteen million a year now. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, uh, it's gone up a lot. Yeah, well, obviously, right-handed quarterbacks can't see to the left as well, so yeah. they call it the blind side, the whole Michael, Michael Orr uh, movie. Um, but it is crucial. You need your most trusted, powerful, uh, athletic, huge man on that blind side uh, protecting you at left tackle. And uh, yet you need every lineman to work together. They can't handle the stunts and the yeah. blitzes by staying in their one spot. They pass off. They communicate. They help. Uh and that's why teamwork is the only way to beat blitzes. You can't hide. You can't pretend. Don't put a veneer on your life. If you're super successful, you're going to have a risk with pride and isolation. Okay? If, if you have a, some shame in your past uh, and you don't feel like you can share, you're going to have a risk of more vulnerability in the yes, future. Yes. Uh, shame is not true. Shame, shame is what Satan labels you as a failure. Guilt is, hey, I did something wrong. I'll confess it to God and I can be fixed. It's something I did. Shame is a terrible message that you are terrible. No. So I'm just encouraging guys, be humble, accept God's definition of you, confess your sin quickly to him. You'll confess your sin far more effectively if you tell it to other guys. Yeah. Not 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 50 guys or a thousand, um, but to two or three close friends. And you need to give each other permission to check on each other. That's so powerful, man. I appreciate that. And you don't want to go home and tell your wife, you know, you're like my big left tackle, <laughs> but she's got your back more than anybody else on the planet. So she needs to be engaged in your life. And, and guys, we really need to get you engaged with other men. That's so important. I hope you've listened to what's going on here today. And if you listen to Jeff and Hey, Jeff, where can these guys pick up a copy of your book? It's on Amazon. Um, so just you can, go to my, you can go to my website, and then there's a link through it, facingtheblitz.com. There's a free six-week and 12-week Bible study with a video and some questions and a scripture and dialogue for a small group. Uh, it's not super religious, so if you have some guys who aren't churchgoers, they'd feel comfortable going through it with you. Um, 
There's a devotion comes out once a month, a video with some scripture and practical application. You can sign up at facingtheblitz.com. Um, so whether it's Amazon or my website, you can, you can, you can get it facingtheblitz.com. Hey, I appreciate that, Jeff. Hey guys, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do next? Let's get our boots on the ground. Let's put an act action together because of what we heard. And here's what we want you to do today. I've been thinking about this and listening to Jeff speak this morning, and I want you to throw the Hail Mary. Forgive the metaphor there, Jeff. Throw the Hail okay. Mary. I want you to think about that secret sin, that secret life, that thing that if people found out, it would highly embarrass you, might ruin your life. And I want you to throw the Hail Mary. I want you to find a guy you trust and just confess it. Just chuck that out in the air. Let it hang there and let him absorb what you just said and bring your darkness out of it and expose it to the light. So guys, find that trusted friend. I've had guys call me out of the blue that I don't even know, Dale, and say, hey, I got to confess this to you. It doesn't have to, yeah, find somebody safe who will not condemn you and throw the Hail Mary, guys. Hey guys, we'll also be posting our boots on the ground on our forum for men and make sure you head over to our website, pick up a copy of my bathroom book for men, and we'll get you on that e-blast for guys. And guys, we are a nonprofit crowdfunded organization that exists to help you become your best version. And because of our generous team of champions, we're able to give our resources free to missionaries, men and underdeveloped nations and active military until next time. Feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Face the blitz. Grind it out and be a man. Men in the arena. If you hunger to be your best version, join us along with thousands of men from around the world. Check out our Men in the Arena forums. You can join on Facebook or on our website at meninthearena.org. While you're on our website, remember to pick up your free electronic version of Jim's Bathroom Book for Men, The Field Guide. It's a daily study of manly words with epic stories in the Bible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men's from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.